0: and I hope you do, find the book of Genesis. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis together, and we're coming toward the end of at least a a series on the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've only got a few more weeks before we'll take a break and look at a few other things in God's Word together for the year. But find, if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 34. Probably not, as, as we will read the text together, probably not what you were expecting to hear a sermon on when you came to church this morning, uh, but we're going to look, all of God's word we're told is God-breathed and sufficient for our equipping, for our growth, and for our life in him, so we're going to see uh, what God would, would have to say to us today. Genesis chapter 34, and we'll read uh, the chapter together. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had boarded Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Give me this girl... For my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. "'Make marriages with us. "'Give your daughters to us "'and take our daughters for yourselves. "'You shall dwell with us "'and the land shall be open to you. "'Dwell and trade in it and get property in it.' "'Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, "'Let me find favor in your eyes "'and whatever you say to me I will give. "'Ask for me a great bride price.' And gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, By every male among you being circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for bold. The land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and all their wives, all that was in their house, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather them against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said... Shall he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of God. The Bible is incredible because it doesn't shy away from the raw realities of life. In fact, I think the Bible's honesty about the darkness of the world is evidence of its truthfulness. God knows the hearts of man and he puts it on full display before all of us. And one of the darkest and most raw passages in all of the scripture is Genesis 34 that we just read together. In fact, if you noticed as I read it, God wasn't mentioned at all in the passage. God was at work in it and behind the whole event. But we've seen that the family of God has gotten far away from God that even the patriarchs were not free from the influence of the world. They had spent time in the land, all the while becoming like the land. If you have your notes, here's what the central point of this passage is. It illustrates for us that you become like where you linger, that you become like where you linger. Here we see the absolutely shameful acts done by every party involved. There is not a hero that's actually one of the characters in this story. Shechem, the son of Hamor, committed wicked acts to Dinah. Jacob, Dinah's father, seems very passive throughout the whole episode. Even Simeon and Levi, though I think in our flesh we can understand their response protecting their sister sought revenge and killed every man every male in the tribe even men who didn't appear to be involved in the situation i think we can all say that's probably a bit excessive isn't it and how they responded and the family of jacob the nation of israel end up divided at the end of this chapter and they're in a wicked land how does this happen how do things get this dark And Genesis is clear that it doesn't happen overnight. In fact, last week we saw that Jacob seemed to have it all going for him. He was headed back home. He had his two wives, his two servants, his 11 sons and his daughter. And he had been freed from slavery to Laban. He'd been reconciled to his brother. And he's on his way back home. All seemed good until he bought land in Canaan. If you remember at the very end of last week... He bought land in Canaan, which may not have seemed of a problem in and of itself, but it seemed like he bought the land, and then he settled down when God had told him to go back home. He had set up his tent in a land, yes, God said would be his, but God hadn't given it to him yet. He knew he wasn't supposed to mingle with these people, but he did anyway. And this lingering leads to two great sins, two dark episodes and two great losses, one that's committed against God's people and one that's committed by God's people. Consider first the defiling of Dinah, the defiling of Dinah. Notice verse one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. A few things to note. First, notice it tells us that Dinah is the daughter of Leah. Now, we've been journeying through Genesis together, and we've seen that Jacob has had children through four different women. He he married these two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And back in chapter 29, we saw that Laban... Had tricked Jacob into marrying both women. He went to his wedding day thinking he was marrying Rachel, but then he came home with Leah, right? And then he marries Leah in addition. So Leah was, at, or he, and so Leah was actually his first wife. But sadly, Jacob often treated her as a second-class wife, as second-rate with disgust. And indifference. And Dinah, we're told, is the daughter of Leah. And it appears sadly that she also was treated with much indifference. Consider next that it tells us that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. Jacob's indifference led Dinah to pursue bad company. She really shouldn't have been out among the people of the land. These were not folks that would have been safe to be around. Jacob should have protected her and been a father to her, and not just not cared where she went or what she did, but rather he should have protected her from the influence and the lure of the surrounding culture. Dinah found herself with bad company, and that isn't to place the blame on her for what happened, but it is to say that who you surround yourself with matters. Finally, notice in verse 2, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Let's be clear. What Shechem did here was an act of violence, a brutal act of attack upon this girl. And we learn here that Shechem's dad, Hamor, was a Hivite. And we come to find out that they're princes of the land, of the the people and the ones who Jacob bought this land from that they're living on. So they have this position of authority over them. That's a piece of this. And what happens here is immoral and sinful. There's no justification, no excuse, no, no beyond that. In fact, the language here of him seeing and seizing comes right out of earlier in the book of Genesis, right? When Eve would see the fruits and take or seize of the fruit and plunge the world into the curse. And it's interesting here that they put the language of the fall right alongside language reserved for marriage. And we see this intermixing, this tainting, this polluting of something that was meant to be a good gift from God. And see, the culture of Canaan wasn't that far from our culture today. Sex was king. Sex was God. Rather than seeing it as a good gift, reserved and best enjoyed in marriage, they made it all about their own good time. (laughs) Oh, see the wickedness of the land. Dinah was a victim of the sexual revolution long before it ever came to the shores of America. She had a Me Too moment long before there ever was a Me Too movement. And what happened here is sadly very familiar to many of us in this culture, not a day goes by where we don't see on the news crimes like this occurring. It's, it's incredible how raw the Bible is with us. That what we see every day on, on CNN or Fox or whatever was happening right in the pages of, of, of where these patriarchs lived But what happens next is is far less familiar to us and far more familiar to the ancient world. Look at verse 3. Look at this. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, a few things to notice here. First, the, whole brutal, the, the brutal assault kind of changes the picture, but... What's occurring here between a father and a son when it comes to finding a wife was actually pretty typical in this culture. If you were there in the days of Genesis, you would, as a son, go to your father and go, Hey, I really like this girl. Can you go talk to her dad for me and see what we can arrange here to make this happen? And we aren't told, at least on the face, that Hamor knows what occurred. And so in these days, when men desired to marry a young woman, the fathers did a lot of talking Right now Jacob had heard what occurred and notice that Moses uses the word defiled and he wants us to really feel the weight of that to understand and Jacob understood this that what Shechem did was not just violence for Dinah and for the whole family but culturally this put her in a desolate spot for the rest of her life. It was likely now that she would have a very difficult time ever marrying in the future. So Jacob holds his peace, but his brothers are furious. Imagine that. A father seeing this happen to his daughter, and he has nothing to say. Jacob and the boys represent two opposite responses to the tragedy. Jacob was passive. The boys were vengeful. And in case there was any question remaining, verse 7 is clear. What Shechem did was an outrageous thing In Israel, by lying with Jacob's daughter, that such a thing must not be done. So Hamor is coming to Jacob and doing what normal ancient Near Eastern fathers did all the time, helping him find a wife. And he comes to this family devastated. He comes to a passive father holding his peace and these angry brothers ready to avenge. Look what happens, verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them saying, "The the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me, give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your sight. And whatever you say to me, I will give, ask for me as great a bride price and a gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, a few things should shout to us as we've been reading through Genesis together. First, Genesis has warned over and over and over again that the children of Israel should not intermix with the peoples of the land. And up until this point, we weren't really sure why, but think about it. Would you want a bunch of Shechem's in your family? You know, this finally answers the question of why they were not supposed to intermix with these people. These people were violent and sinful, and God's covenant people were not to intermarry for a variety of reasons, but specifically... It was because when God's people would intermarry with the people of the land, foreign gods would usually make their way in. And actually will, we'll see in the very next chapter in the life of the children of Israel, they'll have gods and idols just hanging out in their house. And some people have used these verses and these things to, and they've made the point about race, but the point of this, these commands not to intermarry were never about race, but about faith. They were about to, to apply this to the people of God today. This is why Paul would warn believers against marrying unbelievers. Because you're, you have two people with two different loyalties and two different worldviews. And they're going to have to clash at some point. There's going to be a crash waiting to happen. Someone will have to compromise. And God's people are called to no compromise. God's people are called to total devotion to Him Above all else. And so Shechem comes and tries to sort of buy the whole thing away. What a brat, right? He just comes and says, let me buy her and solve, and all of this can go away. Look what he says, verse 11. Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem's desperate. He's willing to do and pay anything. And as prince over the land, he probably could have kept his word on this offer and given them anything at all. And Jacob's family picks up and makes a plan. They make a plan just as sinister as what Shechem did. And, and again, I think our modern sensibilities understand their response to a point. I, upon reading it the first time, kind of related a little bit to the brothers and what they're about to do, but they made a dark plan for the destruction of the family. They moved from the defiling of Dinah to the destruction of the family. They lay a trap that's gonna lead to the murder of every man in this tribe. Look at verse thirteen. Look at this. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, his father Hamor, deceitfully. So the the sons of Jacob, whose name the deceiver, are living up to their father's legacy, right, and they're deceiving. Because he'd been defiled, because he had defiled their sister Dinah, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgraceful thing for us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters to ourselves, and we'll dwell with you and become one people. And if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter And we will be gone. So the sons of Jacob take the lead and we're told that this is a deceitful offer. They ask every male in the tribe to take the covenant sign to be circumcised. Now circumcision was the sign that the children of Israel would give themselves. And this goes back generations all the way to Abraham In chapter 17, and it was the definitive mark of their devotion and their belonging to God. To be circumcised was to be an Israelite, to be the people of Yahweh, the children of Abraham, and to trust in the promise given to Abraham. And they're going to use this holy thing for an unholy cause. They're going to use this holy thing for an unholy cause. And there's more going on in the mind of the sons. Look what happens next in verse 18. Look at this. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored in all of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city. Imagine this. These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Take us. Take, let us take their, their daughters as wives and let them give us their daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. I, I think somebody would have stopped and asked some questions at this point, but no, they're just going right along with it. Look what happens next. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. So every male in the tribe goes along with it. Imagine if you went to a city hall meeting here in Cades and they said, Hey, all the men of Cades, I've got an idea. (laughs) And, And they all go along with this. And I think and, and and they all have put together here, and I think we've put together as we read this, this isn't about the covenant at all. These people don't don't want to do this because they want to identify with the people of Israel. They want their stuff. This isn't about really even penance or restitution, but it's because he wanted this. He wanted Dinah. It's because they wanted to be at peace with them and become one nation with them because then they might get their stuff. Again, verse 23 is huge here. Look at this. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. The family of Hamor has solely selfish motives here. They don't desire to join with the people of God and worship the one true God. They want their stuff. And the incredible thing, too, is even the family of Jacob doesn't want this family to come in with them and worship the one true God either. Look at verse 25. On the third day, when all the men were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away they had these men be circumcised not so they would be devoted to god but to devote them to destruction they used a wicked thing or they used a holy thing for a wicked purpose both the hivites who took the circumcision did it for their own benefit and the children of israel who talked them into it did it for their own benefits So let me apply this here because few of us have probably ever been circumcised for religious reasons. But have we ever been like either of these tribes? Have we ever used the things of God for our own benefits? Have you ever done something for your own applause or for what you could get out of it and said, well, I'm really doing this for God? That's what They did, just as the simple mark of circumcision done with a wrong heart produces nothing. So whatever you do for God, if done in the wrong motive, profits you nothing. So there must have been a level of poetic justice for the Israelites. As they saw the men who had committed this awful crime against their sister go under the knife, so to speak... There must have been a little bit of poetic justice in their mind. And this was all a scheme so they could get their revenge. They went even further than just going after Shechem and Amor. They destroyed every male in the tribe. And they left the whole tribe without brothers, fathers, and sons. And they even were told, verse 27, stole all their stuff. Verse 27, look at this. The sons of Jacob came upon the city. They plundered the city because they defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. They made sure this tribe could never continue. Because without men, there was going to be no reproducing. Dinah was left Likely never to have children. So they wanted to make sure these tribes never had any children beyond them. That's pretty dark stuff, isn't it? It's very dark. And look look at verse 30. Look Look at what Jacob's concerned with. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. In other words, what will other people think? My numbers are few, and if they gather against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He says, hey, we've put ourselves in danger here, but the boys said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Here we see again continuing the two different responses to this. Jacob is concerned about his reputation and Simeon and Levi with revenge. Jacob is worried that he's now going to stink to the inhabitants of the land, and they're going to war against him, but the brothers want to get the last word, right? Don't you realize what he did to her? Even their revenge didn't actually make them feel any better about what occurred. They have radically different concerns and radically different conclusions. And as we come to a passage like this, we've got to ask ourselves, what in the world do we do with this? How do I begin to apply this? What should I conclude? What in the world am I supposed to do? Because this isn't probably a, a story that you'll ever see put on in children's church anywhere. You don't see this drawn out in those little children's Bibles, and for good reasons. This is, this is PG-13 rated R Bible stuff, isn't this? What do we do with this? Well, two applications for us to consider to bring this home to you this morning. First, this passage awakens us to the reality that our biggest problem is sin inside us. Our biggest problem is sin inside us. First, let's consider the sin that was done here of sexual abuse is evil, absolutely evil and demonic. And this text is instructive to us about this, and it's particular to us in our day that we need to hear this. Abuse must be taken seriously. This should cause us to have compassion for others among us who may have had experiences like this, who may have been victims, and for our church to be a a safe place for victims to come forward and to be loved and embraced and heard it should lead us to pray for those among us who have had experiences like Dinah has, and to encourage them in whatever way we can to help them process and heal. Let me say this there 's been a lot of talk in recent years uh, regarding the proper responses of churches and how churches should respond to things like this that happen among them let me Let me be clear on this because If you are a victim of sexual abuse, I want this to be a safe place for you. And our leadership is committed to taking any and all allegations seriously. And rather than the the mistake churches often make is they take matters into their own hands on this, I want to publicly commit that this is something to place into the hands of qualified professional law enforcement who can do a far better job of handling it than we can In these walls, this is better handled under the Romans 13 umbrella of of law enforcement who are deacons. We see there that law enforcement and government are God's deacons for bringing vengeance on the wrongdoer and rewarding the good. And I think this is something that has caused me to think this week of, of of our leadership beginning to review our church's policies and across the board, making sure that we're compliant and clear when it comes to what we do in these very serious situations. So that's something I'm committing to you to make sure we do in days ahead because, church, we must take things like this seriously. What message does it take What message does it send to the world when the house of God treats these things with such indifference? And believe me, there are many that do. But this chapter gets bigger than that. It gives a bigger reality. It doesn't simply address the fruit of sexual sins. It gets to the root of it all because your biggest problem, our biggest problem is ultimately in the mirror. It's ourselves. It is sin within us because every election year, we show ourselves that even as people of the book, we don't believe what the book really says. That humanity's biggest problem isn't ultimately which, pa- which parties in power. Shechem was a, res- was a respected politician, and look where that got him. Some think that if you just give money and resources toward what's wrong in the world, it's going to fix it. Yet Shechem and Jacob had more than enough money and resources. Some of us even think a sort of general morality of, well, he came from a good family. That's going to keep sin at bay. Shechem was one of the most honored people of the land. Because whether we realize it or not, any and all of us are capable of falling into deep, dark sin. Because the central problem of the world isn't outside of us, whether it's political, societal, or economic. Your central problem, my central problem, our central problem is within us. It is sinful hearts. It is moral and theological. It is sinful hearts that produce sinful lives and sinful, broken things. And before we look around for the problems in the world, maybe we should begin by looking in the mirror and looking within. The Bible tells us that the sin from the fall has corrupted every faculty, from every thoughts in our heads, to the affections of our hearts, to the actions of our bodies, from A to Z. Sin has corrupted us. The problem is ultimately within we must realize that while our biggest problem is sin inside of us, the ultimate solution is God's Word outside of us. The ultimate solution is God's Word outside of us because only the Word of God has the power to transform you and to give you a new heart if you yield to it by faith. And the central life transforming, heart changing message of God's Word is about a man named Jesus. And Jesus understands what it's like to be Dinah and to suffer abuse at the hands of the world. And friends, when we read the crucifixion story, we miss the point. If we don't hear our voice in the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And there on the cross, Jesus endured great worldly injustice. But that's only secondary. Secondary. Because on the cross, he also bore the punishment of God. He suffered under the justice of God for the sins of the world. He died in our place, condemned, he stood. And on the cross, Jesus identified with Dinah and and anyone else here within the sound of my voice who has ever felt the weight of shame and guilt. He was naked, mocked laughed at, and on the cross he drank an ocean of guilt and shame. And it appeared to be too much as they buried him in the tomb. Oh, but friends, hear this. Shame and guilt never get the last word. Because on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, and then he emptied the grave of its power, sin of its condemnation, and began the process of transforming the world. And the Bible says that through repentance and faith, we become new creations as we await the full and final transformation of all things. Here's how the apostle Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians 5:17. He says this, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation; the old has passed away; behold, the new has come." And God's desire for you is that you be conformed to the image of Jesus because Jesus became like one of us, except without sin, tasting guilt and shame so that we might become like him. He came to transform our hearts and to conform our lives to Christ and to obedience to his word. Our ultimate need in our day is not economic relief or psychological comforts. Our ultimate need is a new heart. We need to be conformed, not to the world, but by the word. And Genesis thirty-four is a picture of what happens when we begin to be conformed to the world rather than conform rather than conform to God's word. Jacob knew God's word. It had been spoken long ago to him, saying, Don't linger in the land, but trust that one day the land would be his. And what Jacob needed was to trust that word and rather to be conformed, rather than be conformed to the world and the image of the land around him, to be conformed to the image of God in his word. Again, the Apostle Paul gives you the same exhortation when he writes in the book of Romans this, Romans twelve two Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The way to pleasing God, to discerning his will, to doing good and acceptable and perfect is not to dig up the potential within you. (laughs) Or to fill your bank account with tons of cash or to make sure you get political victories. The way to doing what God would have you to do is to look at the book to be conformed to God's truth rather than to what the world might be shouting at you. Genesis 34 is a warning to what happens when you love the world and when you linger with the lawless. Where are you lingering? Because where you linger matters. Let me tell you something. If you linger with the current, with any of the news stations on, I'm sorry. (laughs) if that's what you're being conformed to the image of, we're in a lot of trouble. If we're being lingered to what the world around us might tell us, we're in trouble because we're told that when you linger with the lawless, you become lawless. When you love the things of the land, you become like the land. But When we linger with and love the truth, we become like the one who is truth. Embodied. When we linger with the Lord, we're transformed by His grace. Where are you lingering? God promises that no matter how far you've run or how long you've stayed there, there is always a path back home. Jacob's going to learn that in the next chapter that we look at next week. Jacob's going to be able to head back home even after all of this, and you need to hear that too. Wherever you've been, Whatever you've done, whatever has happened to you, the scriptures would call us to lay it down at the foot of the cross, at the foot of an empty tomb, and through repentance and faith find new life to see our heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh, and he can do that right where you are today or he can begin to, you can begin to make commitments before God that you'll look to the book, and not to whatever in the world might be grabbing at your attention. Where are you lingering, and what are you becoming? Let's stand, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is heavy, <laughs> Your word is real about the evils of the world. This could have been very easily taken out of the book of Genesis and put on the news that we hear today. We see the lesson that it is that you become like where you linger. That if we linger in the land of Canaan, we will become like the Canaanites. That Jacob should have never set up camp there, but went and did what God called him to do. And God is warning us that we're told that this Old Testament is written as an example for us that we might do what they did or not do what they did as an example for us. And so I pray we'll take it to heart that we'll make your word a commitment that we'll look to the book for our hope. And Lord, I also ask that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who has never... Seen your goodness and your kindness in the cross who is weighed down with guilt and shame that you would lift those burdens off of their shoulders and let us see that they've already been placed on yours that they've been buried in the grave with you but that they have stayed dead and that you rose again that guilt and shame and sin might no longer have dominion over us They would stay dead, but you are alive forevermore. So I ask and I pray that if anybody here is under the weight of sin and shame, that they would place it on you because the Bible says to place all of our burdens on you, and you will lift us up. And I pray that we'll take seriously the call to look to your word, all of it, and to be equipped, encouraged, and strengthened by it. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, we're gonna, we're gonna just do that last verse of how great they are in, in that chorus. And so uh, sing loud with us, okay. When Christ shall come. benediction from God's word, this from 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Lord will rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.